Hello and welcome to another episode of Flynn's Talk. It's episode 10, the final one for the season. Uh, it's been one hell of a ride and, and we've had some fantastic conversations along the way. Uh, while we haven't been able to hold our walk events, we've been able to continue the Flynn's Talk side of it and making sure we're having those meaningful conversations and encouraging others to check in with people around them. Uh, my usual co-host through the season has been Jeremy Gelman, but today we're tagging in Dr. Cam Raw. Uh, Cam, welcome to uh, the hosting chair, mate. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me back, especially after last time where I really put you through the ringer of your um, your audio editing skills after the people next door were uh, drilling into the wall, unbeknownst to me, while I was wearing my uh, noise-cancelling headphones. So I'm glad that you that you decided <laughs> to have me back. <laughs> yep, uh, you tried your darndest uh, to derail me mate, in the edit, but yeah, that was um, a note for future. Um, if someone's sanding, they, well, yeah, I mean it wasn't your fault. Um, but I can now, I can now successfully add sanding uh, electric sander sound effect removal from podcast project to my resume. That's. That's a good one for the resume, for sure. It's good to have you back, mate. Um, of course, we had you in it back in episode two, and um, you're an important part of the reason why we started Flynn's Walk and, and have been a part of it since the first day we did it. So I appreciate you jumping in um, for this episode. I'm excited because uh, my pleasure. This one's right in your right in your hitting field, mate. Right in your sweet spot. So we're actually got a really special guest coming up um, shortly, which is uh, Andrea Britton who's been involved with Vets Beyond Borders and, and a whole lot of other amazing work, um, particularly in the One Health space. So I was keen for us um, to introduce the concept of this One Health network, I suppose. Um, you've done a lot of work up in the far north of Australia, up in in the um, in Arnhem Land. Talk, talk me through a little bit about, um, I'll talk our listeners through a little bit about the work you have done, obviously, since you graduated. Yeah, well, it's really exciting to have Andrea on the show because she's been... Um, a real inspiration for me um, and seeing her career um, has sort of inspired me to get into the sort of work that I do now. So um, my work looking at um, the the sorts of, of parasites that can be spread from dogs to people and vice versa um, is the sort of work that I'm, I'm researching now um, in several communities across Arnhem Land and in the Torres Strait. Um, so I do a bit of vet, uh, clinical vet work up there too um, and trying to uh, sort of work out how we can look after both the dogs and and the people better. And um, One Health, which is a field that Andrea and I are both um, pretty heavily involved in, um, is it's, it's sort of a newer term for, for most people. It's really the, the interface between human, animal and environmental health. So it's a really, really super broad way of, of looking at, at health in the, the biggest way possible. Um, and while it's a newer term for most of us, um, something that, that I really enjoy about working in um, First Nations communities um, is the fact that it's it's so intrinsic to their way of life up there. Um, the conversations that I've been able to have with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people has just been so incredibly enlightening. Um, learning about 
the interconnectedness of the people and the animals and the environment where it's all it's all part of um, one bigger bigger system and concepts that might be a bit more foreign in a in a western sense about how animal and human health are are so interconnected just comes like like that to, to a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So we we have a lot a lot to learn there. It's fascinating, mate. And I'd love um, we we will have opportunities to tap into that as well um, with your own projects as we progress along in the series of Flynn's talks too. But uh, today we are going to be joined by Andrea, and her career journey has been one of um, many many different interests and, and a hell of a lot of study. Uh, and she's been to some fabulous places. So. Uh, without further ado, we'll bring Andrea into the conversation. Let's do it. Andrea, thank you for taking the time to join us on Flynn's Talk um, today. And I really appreciate things are busy and, and life's, life's got challenges of its own at the moment. So um, I really appreciate you, you dropping by for a chat. Thank you. We connected thanks to... Uh, another uni- University of Melbourne graduate from the same year as Flynn. For the benefit of our listeners, it'd be great for you to talk a little bit about your own pathway to what you're, you're doing now. Um, I suppose it all sort of started back on the family farm in New South Wales. Is that right? Yes, that's right, Jack. Yes. Um, yeah, I was very um, fortunate to, to have a, a, r- a rural upbringing and, and we've still got the family farm near Cowra in the central west of New South Wales and my my parents are in their 80s and still on, on the farm. And um, my mum was a hospital pharmacist in the um, um, Central West in the, in the 70s. So, you know, I grew up counting, counting um, antibiotics and helping her and, and, um, and helping dad with the sheep and the cattle and the, riding the horses. So, you know, I always, I was, always wanted to be a vet. You know, my dear love of animals and the land and agriculture and so that kind of um, led me to wanting to do vet science. I didn't, I didn't actually um, get into vet science straight away from going to, to school in rural New South Wales, but um, I went to Sydney University and I studied agriculture science initially and I, I um, went, you know, excelled, you know, and, and top of the class and got the scholarship and then transferred. Well done transferred into into veterinary science and I was fortunate at Sydney University and I was living in women's college which is um was a college with about 270 you know brilliant women and it was just an environment that I could really excel in and um and you know great great times in the in the 80s and during that time I also did some of my undergrad work at the University of California Davis in um in USA so that was a great experience and um, I'd spent a bit of time in the states before because I'd actually graduated from high school from the US as an exchange student and um, yes I think seeing the work at the University of California Davis sort of blew my mind away a bit with the you know the the funding and the just the scale of operations there and at that stage you know I could have gone on into a research pathway but I I came back and I I you know, it was always going to clinical practice, you know, you go through vet school and you it's always do clinical practice. And, you know, the opportunity was there to come back into practice at Cowra, but, yeah. you know, I was encouraged to go and make my mis- mistakes elsewhere, you know, don't make them at home. <laughs> um, so I, I ventured out. My first job was in Tamworth. Um, so I cut my teeth up there, literally. 
Wow. And um, yeah, and really, really enjoyed the work. And as, as many Australian and New Zealand vets, so after a little while, I, I ventured to to the UK like Flynn did. Yeah, nice. I think I can understand why Flynn went to the UK. You know, we're, our degrees, um, graduates are, are very well thought of in the UK and we, we're known as hard workers and we and they they really like us in the UK. So I, I really, uh, I've been mm. thinking a lot about Glenn Hurts and his venture there. That's nice to hear. I, I work in cricket in the, in the sport area and um, the way we're, we're uh, looked upon by the, by the Brits is a little bit different than to the animal <laughs> health world, I think, in terms of the, the ashes. Um, that's all fueled by passion and friendship ultimately, um, which is nice. But yeah, that, that, uh, that UK uh, itch that, a lot of vets feel that they would they want to scratch seems to be an important step. Yes, definitely. You step out and um, you can you've got a bit of experience and and then but you you know you're still in in a in a foreign country even though it's very similar to Australia. So you know it is it is challenging over there um, when and when you're locuming. You know you've got you're doing five minute consults literally. You've got. Um, a lot of people coming through, and um, so it, it, it does put you under a lot of um, a lot of additional pressure. Yeah. Um, in those situations, um, it's you know it is a great a great experience, but it does um, put you under that pressure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And so, um, obviously, you cut your teeth with uh, with clinical practice, um, and then you moved into epidemiology. So, what what sort of sparked that? that change or that that passion in you i moved into the um realm of epidemiology i guess we, i guess as veterinarians we're already really trained to think as epidemiologists um but when i i moved to melbourne in 1995 um for a relationship um and i had been in race course practice as an equine veterinarian at canberra and i came down here and i had an interview at flemington racetrack and i thought you know, I just don't really want to be, um, do, do this, you know, I, you know, it didn't really sit with my values as mm-hmm. I didn't know at that stage, but, right. um, now, now I know why I kind of thought, no, nah, this isn't really, you know, doing it for me anymore. And whenever I talk to groups of vets about my career trajectory, they, they always don't really understand you, you had it all. You, you, why did you get out of equine practice? You know, cause they're all, you know, thinking that's and I go well it's it's important to try it out you know that's what I I grew up and and wanted to do but after a while you you actually get a bit um you lose your passion for it and um and there's different reasons for that and I so I I applied for a job at CSL which is now you know a big global um pharmaceutical company it was it had been um a government company that you know produces vaccines and um, blood products, and it still is that today. But it's like the second biggest flu, pro- um, human flu producing company globally now. Anyway, I, I applied for a job there in um, research and development and um, technical services and regulatory work, and and I was successful. So I I joined Big Pharma, and I found that I wasn't speaking the language, and and we were really getting hammered for the the work that Big Pharma did, and I was supporting technically in Australia and New Zealand. And so I thought, well, I better get, get a bit more educated here around. So I joined a study group at that stage um, for the Australian College of um, 
and New Zealand College of Veterinary Science Epi chapter. And it was a great study group because it was it was very big and a lot of very um, reputable veterinarians were involved um, um, in that study group in, in um, 1997 we went through. And um, it was a great way of studying epidemiology because I think really, and, and though people at these times are having to do everything online, but really studying epidemiology is best done in a group where you can have discussions and, um, and talk talk um, around things. So, and you know, I had a very different um, way of looking at studies because of my um, working for Big Pharma, you know, because people want to do a safety study and, and I'd say, well, actually, the regulators only required me to have two or four animals. So that's how many I'll have in my, my sample group. So, you know, we had some really rich, rich discussion and um, actually it's a way of thinking as Cam, Cam would say, you know, I, after, after studying um, veterinary epidemiology and then, then moving on to, to studying um, public health and, and majoring in, in public health epidemiology, you know, the way I navigate life, even the supermarket, you know, how I go down, down the aisles and, and how I, you know, select what I select, you know, it, is, it affects how you, how you think and, um, and approach problems. Take me into that a little bit more. What, what do you mean? Like it's what, selecting based on what, like you're, what you're putting into your body in that sense? Is that what you're talking about? Or where something comes from? Like... Yeah, almost. Yeah, yeah. Like reading, reading the labelling on things. Okay, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How you, um, if you you're looking at um, um, information on on um, you know even on on Facebook or um, anywhere where you're often given you know especially these days you're given a lot of um, study information <laughs> and study information even before it's been peer reviewed. Um, so, you know, it, it really affects how, how you look at different issues and see if that it can be done in, in um, a formalised statistical way and be done in, in a more human-orientated way. And often, often the human-orientated way, um, which, you know, we call qualitative research, you know, can be more, a, bit, a bit more challenging because you have to really, it's really putting yourself in other people's um, shoes and 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 gathering gathering out information yeah and at the moment i'm involved um being quite busy because we've actually been um doing some of those studies there's a, a pig disease that's affecting um the world at the moment called african swine fever and it's um recently um entered um papua new guinea and, and killing the pigs and so we've been working um testing the communication material with um smallholder farmers and that's been really important because we as vets, you know, we think very technically and we think, well, we'll just tell you and, and you'll do it, won't you, mate? And, um, you know, it's really important that we actually talk to the end user, speak their language. If the, You know, in um, PNG, there's hundreds of languages, but there's um, and different dialects. So, you know, we need to be really understanding when we're working with with people and smallholder farmers in low and middle income countries, more about how how they perceive disease and, and um and information. It's a really interesting point that you make about the the qualitative side of things, which I think can sometimes be a little bit neglected by those of us who really love the the facts and and figures. Um, some of the work that I've been exposed to um, in the top end of Australia with uh, Michael Ward and, and Vicky Brooks, um, looking at um, 
uh, the possibility of rabies entering Australia because if it if it were to that's that's where it would come in and some of their work has been um, working out the best way to communicate to the local people um, what to look for in cases of, of rabies because obviously you know there's not many people in Australia um, other than than vets probably who would know what to expect if um if we did have rabies so it can be such important work getting getting the word out there and working out what the best way it is to to get the, the word out there it's really fascinating stuff so you're really talking about there's there's numbers in spreadsheets and there's information and stuff coming at you but you're talking about actually disseminating that info out to communities of people right and letting them know of what could be coming i suppose it's we're heading perfectly to where i want this discussion to go which is towards this one health focus um which at the moment it couldn't be any more <laughs> prevalent um in terms of the covid virus that we're all well aware of <laughs> someone ate a bat in a market i don't know or an eel or something like that um and next thing we're in lockdown and i can't go to the local pool i'm simplifying what's been <laughs> what a hell of a process and an evolution of a virus around the world but um my point there is is that uh, what what we'd love to highlight is uh, the work that veterinarians do in in identifying these diseases that are actually born um, in an animal and transfer across and jump into to the human world. Um, it's something both of you have worked across. And Cam, you've spent time up in the north of Australia, and Andrew, as you said, uh, in PNG and other places around the world. Um, my point is from all of this, um, veterinarians, Andrea, yourselves included in that do an incredible amount of work and play an incredible role in actually making sure humans are kept well. Yes, Jack, that's, that's exactly very correct. And I, I guess that that's why we go into the pr profession um, because we're, we're very generally very caring people and, um, and, um, and we, we really want to, and we have a, a love and passion around animals. But yes, I guess COVID's um, really highlighted, you know, <laughs> the importance of one health and with the emergence we we know that um bats and there's been a lot of um, um work around bats and emerging diseases from you know hendra virus in australia and and overseas um you know we saw with the um sars-1 virus that you know it, it had emerged out of out of bats and then into into super cats and then also with um, a similar coronavirus that has emerged out into and into camels called and and causing a disease that's um, called Middle Eastern respiratory syndrome and we've also seen with the Nipah virus so and Ebola I guess is, is you know so we we actually know that bats you know and there's been a lot of work um Peter Dazak has been doing and others in China have done. So we've known about the coronaviruses in China um, for quite a while, but there's been this disconnect between, you know, this research between this one health sort of research and and then the translation of that into into you know into action into into any policy. Um, so I think it's really important. We were we we're discussing today about. All the, uh, all the epidemiologists from the veterinary school working in at the Department of Human Health and Services here in Victoria. And the great modelling, they're doing some amazing modelling work. And, and I really hope it, it, it comes out and, and in the work that veterinarians are doing currently, because 
veterinarians are very good at modeling and disease control in populations of animals and that's what we've got at the moment you know we've got we've got populations of animals and we've got them in houses just you know like like with animals and and we're actually good at working that way because often we um, in human health we work as the the individual animal the, all the time so so this has been a very good um um, time for sharing because it's very it's very generic and um, hopefully out of COVID there will be more more One Health research and and more structure you know nationally internationally in relation to to um, how the different sectors um, work together and not working in silos um, as as we do. I suppose that yeah the biggest thing that we've learned through history is that people can get sick from something that started in an animal population um, as you've just given a rattled off a few examples there. And um, who knows what can be around the corner. There's a, there's that, if only we had the crystal ball, right. Um, and, and as you say, we maybe had somewhat of a forecast around what could have potentially become of this, this COVID situation, but we are where we are now. And um, unfortunately we, we're now trying to trying to mitigate it, getting any further, but Cam, I guess like you and I were chatting earlier um, and, and I, the question I was wondering was who starts off an, an investigation or a research project into something like this? Like, is it veterinarians nudging uh, human medical workers or is it the other way around? Like, or is it a bit of, bit of um, interconnectedness? Yeah. Well, I guess that's the, that's the thing with, with one health is it's, it is to do with the interconnectedness and sometimes it can be such a big tangled spaghetti mess of, interconnectedness that we don't even know necessarily what you know where it starts what causes what I suppose often what we tend to see um, as far as who is initiating investigations is probably who's noticing the problem um, sometimes that can come down to um, health outcomes for humans or animals it might be an economic issue um, those are the thoughts, generally the sorts of, of um, instigating factors that we'll often see um, and sometimes it can take a little bit of a little bit of persuasion to get some of the other um, other people in the associated fields to to come on board so um, it's something that I've had a little bit of difficulty with, I guess, in my work, um, trying to trying to get some of the people involved from the human side of, of health um, excited about my work, um, which, you know, looking at dog poo isn't that exciting for many people. It is for me, but, <laughs> but probably not for them. Why not? <laughs> but that is really what, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine why it wouldn't be exciting for anybody else. Um, but that's the sort of um, really the sort of interaction that we need um, is everybody coming together for these sorts of issues and really, really pulling it to, together and looking at it in a really um, holistic way in the truest sense of the word. Because I think holistic has often been reserved for um, herbal treatments and things like that, but really holistic medicine is looking at a really, really big picture um, and One Health is is great in that sense, I think. I think the important thing, Andrea, as well, is that the that the animal and human healthcare workers or, or researchers are working together before we're having to put a stop to a shipload of cows coming in from somewhere because they might have a disease, right? 
Yes, preparedness is is very very important. Um, um, you know, prevention. Because just imagine if retrospectively, if we were we were more prepared um, for the emergence of um, you know this the, the um, SARS two coronavirus. Um, and you know, we had a bit of opportunity there that we could have been. But you know, I think um, you know that. And to, to reflect on that internationally, you know, which we are, which we are doing and WHO is doing and um, the Australian government is wanting to do with other, with other nations too, because I think that's really important that, that we kind of learn on that and then we, then we you know, we put the funding um, in those areas. But, but having recently been working for the um, World Organisation for Animal Health in the Southern African region across 16 countries, there um are they like the who for animals yes they are They're, right okay yeah yeah it's a french intergovernment organization that actually was formed in in the 1925 um, due to cattle plague called rinderpest and so they were formed before the un was formed so wow. they've been around a long time and okay. um yeah. they work in directly with WHO and they also work in directly within an alliance with um, the Food and Agriculture Organization for the UN and they do that that formally they're doing that now for COVID um, they're, they're working in very much um, um, in relation with COVID but they've they originally had joined this alliance for avian influenza outbreak in the early 2001 and that's when really when the approach of One Health started out of, out of um, avian, you know, zoonotic um, bird, you know, influenza. And then they've got together for, for dog rabies. So, you know, we're hoping to, to and that's been an area of my passion um, with um, working as a director for Vets Beyond Borders and then also with um, the OIE um, on a project in, in Namibia to help control and eliminate dog mediated rabies by 2030. Right, okay. That's the goal. And um, there's been a lot of research around that. And in a way, if we can't, if we can't do it for dog rabies, then, you know, we can't really do, do it. And, and a big issue with it is, is actually finding the burden of disease because you need to, you, you really need to have some sort of cost benefit for um for government to be able to to fund and often it's they you know they're called neglected diseases because you know they they're just not prioritized compared to malaria hiv just good quality water you know the third area is antimicrobial resistance which is what i'm working in at the at the moment um is where they've they've got together and um, and this one health approach um, for antimicrobial resistance, because if we if we don't kind of look at the moment, our antibiotics are becoming, you know, the, the microbes are becoming resistant to the antibiotics. And so that's what you're talking about there, right? You're talking about us becoming resistant to antibiotics when we're sick. Yes, our our at the microbes that in, infect us. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Generally, if you if you've got a bacterial infection, and you'll you'll get antibiotics and um and the the same in 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 animals often it's hard to know if you've got a bacterial infection like i'm sure there's a lot of antibiotics being used and we know there is because of the coronavirus and we also know there is a lot because of this african swine fever um so that's what i'm where we're working on and that's um uk government funded um projects in in 
So we know that in, in low and middle income countries, there's a, a lot more um, misuse of, of antibiotics and, and we need to build their capacity in being able to, to diagnose um, you know, what, what you know, microbes are being involved and which antibiotics to use. It's an incredibly complex project. It sounds like you've worked on fascinating stuff, but when you actually uh, boil it down to what you're talking about, it's, it's purely making sure people don't get sick. And the animals don't don't perpetuate the spread of that. I hope that you got your passport stamped in all these places you've been to as well. <laughs> um, one of the things you touched on there, um, which I'd like to just expand on a little bit, and we will be expanding on it more in another episode, um, probably in the second season, but um, is the, the 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 prevention of spread of rabies, which um, Flynn, of course, was involved over in the very far northern part of India, where it's pretty much Nepal. Um, and your connection there with Vets Beyond Borders, that, that must have been incredibly challenging, rewarding, all, all of the above, that, that, that work for you? Um, working um, with Vets Beyond Borders was, yeah, it was very much a privilege being on, on the board um, with, with the Australian NGO that, that um, works across, um, globally. It originated um, with their project work um, um, in India but now is is has partnering up um, globally and and also within Australia with the um, Australian Veterinary Emergency Response Team, which is AVERT, which has been very um, involved with providing veterinarians and para veterinarians following the fires um, in Australia. So yes, yeah, the work in India that um, and Flynn went as a volunteer, um, as a veterinary volunteer. He was the youngest um, volunteer veterinarian to go to Sikkim. Um, in between um, Bhutan and um, Nepal and he worked in there with the um, Sikkim Anti-Rabies and Animal Health Program, the SARA program with Dr Thinlay and his wife Dr Dickey and really happy that yeah they'll that they'll have a separate um, little talk um, coming up soon so that's wonderful. Now I'm looking forward to that and expanding a little bit more on um, their community and how uh, those that visit that area get involved in the culture and their religious practices. And um, I'm really looking forward to digging into that a little bit more. Um, on that, uh, for yourself, you, you've done so many amazing things and been to so many amazing parts of the world and no doubt experienced a lot of stress during your career as well. And I was interested to, we, we generally ask most of the guests we have on um, the podcast just around what, you do for your own mental health practice when you're away and you've been away for a while and you're not going to be home for a while, things like that. And even when you are back at home, managing that, that intense workload and, and having uh, focused time and time for yourself. Um, in all of that, my question really is, is that how do you, how, what keeps you balanced? Very good question, Jack. I think I've got better. I, I could, he, I should have my husband here saying whether, <laughs> whether I've got better at, um, the balance of life and um but it's it's been my journey it's been um at times even even just recently even you know this week you know when you when you're juggling so many um um different tasks to do with your job and and added added with um the complexity of working from home and not being able to work in at work and you know, I've had to kind of just say, "Hey," because I've you know I've been doing some you know catching up at at night, which then you know can 
can you know keep happening um, when you're working from home. And and I've been working from home on and off since you know I set up my consultancy um, in 2002. So I'm kind of used to to kind of that. But um, but before when the kids were younger, you know, I do my work at night because that's when I could work. Okay. Yeah. You know, because I had to do things with them during the day. So it can become a hybrid and, and it is often very hard to switch off, which I think more people are finding out now because of um, working from home. And um, it is really important to to recognise when you are you're going into habits that are, that become very familiar and to actually kind of step out of that and... and um, and I'm very fortunate because with um, my employer now, Burnett Institute, you know, that it, it, that's their, their priority and that's all I'm really enjoying working for them is, is the, the health and well-being of their, their staff. And even every Friday that we have an open door session and the CEO of Burnett speaks and he, you know, he we asked, you know, what sort of performance are you seeing of your workers? And he said, I'm not, I've got no expectations and, and they've actually got this 80-20 rule and that they haven't, you know, everybody's under different pressures and I, and I think that's the same in veterinary practice, you know, everybody's an individual and what pressure, you don't know what's happening at home with people or, or what, what different situations happening with them. So it's really, um, I guess, important to, to check in on them and, um, and even like yesterday, um, my masseur was back. So I went and had a massage and, and I actually I actually said to the guy that I was working with, I had a massage today, I had to step out, you know. And before, you know, I probably wouldn't have shared that. I I felt comfortable and um to to share that and they were they were also understanding of that or that or when when I have to step out. So I guess it's 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 sort of a two way thing, but feeling comfortable enough with who you're working with that you can say that and that they that they understand sure you know it, and it's a bit more difficult when you're working with critically ill animals and things like that because sometimes you might not be able to step out you know that you have to you know you've got a another a vulnerable person that uh, animal that you're responsible so but in in um my work at the moment you know I'm, I'm fortunate that I that I can step out um but it's really important to to recognise that. I do a lot of um, of I do a lot of yoga and of on and off with my meditation. You know, I, I try to to do that and off just to try and in, increase my practice because I know that that will be really important for me and especially when I when I do go to PNG in the future. We all need that balance, Cam, don't we? And I know that you found you've had your own time working from home and um, neighbours running sanding machines and things just grating on you even more just to add to the pressure but yeah well i give as good as i take really i've been doing my my own um bit of renovation so i've been making my own own noise but um yeah it's been it's been a, a weird time to try to compartmentalize um work and I never thought that I would miss the commute but it was a really good <laughs> way to sort of just decompress after after the day because I usually ride my bike um or I yeah. you know, take the tram and listen to a podcast and so I think it's really important at the moment in particular to you know obviously there's no point getting on a tram and just going somewhere just to take a tram but to to get out of the house or to <laughs> <Enjoy> ride, <yeah. laughs> intentionally take that time 
um, and make it a, a regular thing that you are taking time for yourself um, because, yeah, I've been keeping some pretty weird hours at the moment too where it's it's all blending into the next day and um, as, as things are starting to happen again, there's sort of more projects that I'm getting involved with and sometimes it's hard to say no. So um, it is very important to to make time for yourself that's for sure yeah absolutely and andrea uh, you're throughout your working career but also i suppose your continued learning career as well you've you've had this appetite to continue to to study and you talked about the early starting out of agricultural science and vet science and then finding specialization you liked and going back and doing your master's of public health which has set you off i guess on on this trajectory now with the work you're doing um that that's i suppose you've had some key points in your career where you've set yourself up and maybe slightly reset and and gone about some different things there might be veterinarians listening there might be other people in other in other sectors of life listening to this podcast taking that leap to to continue to study or to try something different is is not the easiest thing to do what would be your advice uh, i suppose for those who are looking to do something different, maybe a clinical vet that wants to specialise or um, look for another opportunity to do something different? My career trajectory is being sort of um, quite different um, to to other people's. Um, and not a non-linear, right? That's right, non-linear. That's what I said to you. It sounds like it's a straight line from, well, you did this and you went to there and then you got this degree and then you went on your merry way, but it's not, that's not the case. <laughs> no, that that's right. And in, in between that, have, having a family, and um, I guess it's it's looking at um, areas. And I often um, um, have a lot of um, people who contact me, um, particularly women, um, who contact me um, in relation to um, different career choices and and in public health and epidemiology. Um, but I think it's, yeah, do, do your research. Um, it's, that's sort of changing all the time and, um, you know, find your passion first and then perhaps, and doing a broader degree like in public health um, helps that because it's, you know, it's quite broad, but I always sort of encourage people to go down the epidemiology pathway within that. I guess try and, try and step out, out of that and to, to find what, what you're interested in. Um, and how 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 you going to to support that? I guess I was very fortunate because my my husband um, you know supported me in the time I was fortunate with my master's of public health that I got a Commonwealth supported position. Um, so try and sort of look out you know what sort of funding there is that you could could get um, you know which will be more bit more challenging at the moment because of um, with um, COVID and government funding. Um, but yes, yeah, try and investigate those avenues, and um, it's, it's taking the courage, to, you know, to do that. You know, to step out of what you're doing because it's always very comfortable to do. You know, stay where you are, but it's it's having yep. that courage. Leave to, it as it is. Don't touch it if it ain't broken, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. What's familiar, yeah. and and just you know, I really encourage people to 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 be courageous, but have that support. You know, whether it's directly or or to to help you because it's not always you know going back into to full-time study as cam knows isn't always um um you know it's such a big change and it's um you know and, and if you've had it had a break um then you know that might be more 
more challenging also to um, to get back into to studying. So I did my my masters of public health ten years ago. So you know I'm I hadn't been doing that sort of study um, for quite a quite a few years. So yeah, and it's just connecting with people that can support you on your journey. Um, as as you know, I'm a people person. So um, yeah, and it's just you know um, connecting with people um, to and not and you know, to have an that sort of growth mindset, as um, they say, you know, to kind of do take that and, and don't don't be scared. Like if you do stumble and um, and you know it doesn't work out exactly how you wanted it to, you know, but just think, well, that's just my journey, and um, and look at you know what you have benefited, you know, what you've learnt or from from that, because there's always some learnings from from everything, and and try to to look at at something that might be a negative as a, as a learning and then um, to kind of um, to put it as a as a positive rather than than as a say a failure or or um, it wasn't exactly how I wanted it well that but that can be a huge barrier can't it because we're all guilty of thinking oh no I can't do that because if I if I bugger the whole thing up then it's I'm, I'm wrecked and I'm back to square one and we catastrophize don't we like there's there's a very common fear of failing like with people, was stressed that they might muck something up or it won't go the way they thought it might. And it's fantastic that you were able to find support in others and through your family to, to, to take those opportunities and, and, and push in the direction you wanted to keep going in. So um, well done for that. Yeah, these days also there's, there's great coaches out there um, you know, Emma Davis is a great, great coach. I just put a plug for him. Um, but you know, there are some great coaches in 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 Australia and um, internationally, and there's um there is great resources. Um, so, and 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 mentoring, you know, whether that's direct family mentoring or or through colleagues, I'd recommend. Yeah, there are uh, Facebook groups and Facebook pages, Cam, as well, where um. Uh, vets get together and chat about diversifying or, or changing careers, whichever way you want to put it. Um, there's also uh, the Veterinary Careers site um, as well, which is a great, great resource. Um, it's not something I look at regularly, but I'm certainly across it, um, having having networked now with quite a few people through this work. But uh, there is stuff out there and, and it can be a quick Google or a quick conversation or hopefully even maybe even listening to Flynn's talk, um, you get a little bit of inspiration to try something different or have a go uh, at something you've been thinking about doing. I'd like to finish on um, maybe you talking about a moment where you've had a mentor uh, help set you on your path, Andrea, or, or an amazing experience that you thought, um, yeah, I'm glad, I, I'm glad I went down this route. I've been fortunate to have so, so many um, people who've touched and guided me I guess in it's it's being open for that guidance um and um and sitting sitting with that guidance you might not always like it but um part of my master's of public health I went to India to do um my uh, subject in primary health care and I went to uh, a rural um the um rural um comprehensive um primary health care um project in Maharaja um, inland from Pune or Mumbai they really it, and it was associated with the hospital in a rural area op- opposite a slum area and and it was a husband and wife Dr. Aroli and his his daughter his wife 
And they really embraced me. They, they knew why I was there because everybody else has said, what is, what's a vet doing, you know, this public health course? And, and they had a farm and they sent me out to the farm and um, they, they really understood why I was there um, and the importance of, of, of the role. And, but what, they, what Dr. Rowley had always said to me, you know, it takes about three years to build up trust in a community. He was Indian and he was from there. And so that's what I've always found, you know, when I go and work in low and middle income countries, you know, it's to be kind to myself and, and realise that, you know, these people don't know me and I've got to build up some trust here. You know, I've got a certain amount of time that I have to be delivering on and I often find that that pressure, um, Cam's nodding his head there. <laughs> but, yeah, building trust, as Cam would know, having worked um, in um, Northern Australia, um, Indigenous communities is so important and, you know, we really need to do that in Australia and, and we're seeing that at the moment, you know, we've got to do a lot of work on building trust <laughs> and speaking their language, you know, and, and, and working with them for solutions, not going in there with solutions. Um, the learnings I learnt there changed me when I went to, to India. It's a magical place and I can see why Flynn, Flynn went to Sikkim um, and came back changed. So I think, yes, I think the mentoring from their role is would probably be, be one up there on the top. Mm, that's really great advice. That's definitely something I experienced too in the, in the top end. Um, a lot of the communities when we first started going there, prior experience with people who had something to do with the dogs in the community were the people who would come out and cull the dogs. So of course, when we went out, uh, they wanted nothing to do with us because we're coming out saying we're going to take the dogs away momentarily and you know why would you trust these people who've just come in um and we're usually you know pretty busy we've got a week or two there so we want to try to get as many dogs desexed as we can um and so just having those those conversations with people about you know trying to educate people where you can just have conversations about their their animals um and with some people it would you know, you come back the next year, say, do you want your dog de-sexed? They'd say, no, you're not coming near it. Um, but eventually it was about after four years, I think, of going there, um, people who wanted nothing to do with this before were saying, yeah, I'd like you to look after our dogs. So having those sorts of experiences has been incredibly rewarding. Um, so, yeah, just taking that that time with people, um, if if you have the luxury of it, um, is is really good. Nice one. Yeah. Nicely said. Um, it says a lot about both of your characters um, and a lot about the character of veterinarians in general. I think and the work that you do and the outcomes that you that you're focused on getting. But um, you've got a uh, an amazing awareness of of the steps you need to take and and the ways you need to connect with people in order to get that. So. I'm looking forward to reading both of your books one day, as I'm sure there's, there's a hell of a book. I'm picturing a book with lots of photos, um, hand-scrawled notes maybe, um, somewhat of a, a life journal. But Andrea, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And I really appreciate that uh, you've taken time out while you are busy. Um, uh, but thanks for having a chat on Flynn's Talk. And Jack, can I just leave with one, something that was recently said to me that I, I found very inspiring was to always find the passion in, you, in your role and it will take you down a great journey. Great. I really like that. Fantastic to have Andrea on the episode, Cam. And uh, Absolutely. I, 
I am I'm genuinely interested in in what could be uh, some sort of a memoir or book. I reckon she's got some pretty amazing stories and experiences to share. Absolutely. She's got a real wealth of diverse experiences. And uh, yeah, I think it'll be hard to contain in in one book, really. As always, uh, we just like to mention, um, obviously, the focus of these episodes is to to share stories from the veterinary field, but also acknowledge um, the, the mental health sector and, and, and finding support if you need it. And we touched on um, mentorship and, and guidance and finding things for career change. But if there's some stuff in your life you're finding tough or you're just not having a good time or you feel like you need a little bit of extra support, there's always opportunities out there to get in touch with Beyond Blue. Um, Kids Helpline, of course, do amazing work. Headspace for under 25s. And Are You OK? have some amazing resources um, and guiding tools, I suppose, for ways to have conversations and, and be there for each other. Um, but of course, remember that um, you need to be feeling okay yourself before you ask others. Uh, Cam, it's uh, we're rounding out a incredible series, um, a wonderful first season of Flynn's Talk. Thank you for um, everything you've contributed towards this cause. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Always remember we're online at flynnswalk.com.au. We're on Instagram. Uh, we're on Facebook. So you can get in touch with us there. Um, if you're interested in setting up a walk or, or at least starting the discussion, um, you can always get in touch with us via the Facebook page or via the website. Um, we're open to new ideas and new new guests for the podcast as well. So uh, you, can, you can stay connected with us there throughout the journey of this COVID era. Thanks again, mate. And uh, we'll chat soon. Sounds good. Sounds good.